People are strange when you're a stranger. Faces look ugly when you're alone. Women seem wicked when you're unwanted. Streets are uneven when you're down. When you're strange, faces come out of the rain. When you're strange, no one remembers. And welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Now, in this episode, I will be, be jumping into the second part of, of Arthur Mervyn by Charles Brockton Brown. This is the third episode I've, I've spent looking at this, this novel. Uh, so this novel is broken up into two parts. Each, each is about 25 chapters or so. And they, they really cover distinct sections in the life of Arthur Mervyn, even though it all takes place in like a year or so. Um, the first half is really Arthur Mervyn leaving his home trying to get his independence, falling into the clutches of a trickster, of a con artist, of criminal, seducer, all these bad things, getting kind of caught up in that mix, and then finding out where he is and finding out this is the situation he's in, and then getting free of that and getting his independence from that. And the climax of the first half of the novel is his confrontation with this trickster Welbeck when um, he has the upper hand, he has the knowledge, he has some money that Welbeck wants, and he's able to actually confront him straight up and, and in a way kind of symbolically declare his independence of that old type of dependency. Right Now that could be a novel. I mean, that first part you know, could stand on its own. In fact, it was published in two parts, I think a year apart. Part one was published, I think, in 1799, and part two, one year later. So it does kind of stand alone. Um, and it's a really interesting tale, the, the, really the highlight of... The first part of Arthur Mervyn, I think, is the descriptions of the yellow fever epidemic in Philadelphia, which are some of the most stunning moments in the book. But even that aside, it's an interesting, almost like a hard-boiled novel about uh, a good, good, a good kid, you know, but a good poor kid who gets caught up in crime and then has to find, kind of weasel his way out of crime. Um, and in many ways, the second half of the novel, and I think I'll be a little bit quicker with it. Uh, because of this, it's it's a lot of cleanup. It does have a lot of interesting things to say, but it's it's much more about cleaning up Mervyn's life. It's got really two, th two or three themes in it. One really has to do with uh, fixing the crimes of Welbeck, addressing those crimes, giving people back their money, addressing people, finding people who have had their life stolen from them by Welbeck. So with Welbeck out of the picture, he's still alive. But he's in kind of debtor's prison at this time, and he's going to die by, before the end of the novel. So it's up to then Mervyn as the only person really remaining from that group to go back and redeem those families or money. Or in the one case of, of Mrs. Watson, you know, deal with the fact that that well, well that killed her husband in, in the first part of the novel. So that's part of the story. It's kind of cleaning up the mess of Welbeck. Um, you know, finding Clemenza Lodi, this woman that Welbeck seduced um, and kind of left her in a den of prostitution. It's really horrible stuff, actually. But the, the, that's one theme that's going on is this kind of cleaning up the mess. The other has to do with really Mervyn becoming independent in his own right, right? Going off as a, on his own. Now, part of that is these quests he goes on. And, and actually, the second half of the novel reads like a lot of little quests, a lot of mini quests he's going on for you know, to help this person or that person. Um, but it's all about him kind of reaching out on his own, not needing the help of other people, right? So 
now he's got he's also got to find like a wife and a career and that's all themes going on here as well and I, I that's the main two things going on in the second half of the story we we lose the yellow fever epidemic except kind of in, in the sense that we get the aftermath of it but we really don't have that anymore i don't know i, I think it could it's significantly less interesting i'd have to say compared to the first part the first part is much more captivating and this one this half seemed to drag i'd have to say i didn't find myself as eager jumping into it. and that's why it's taking me a while to kind of get back into into arthur mervin i, I think if you read just the first half you'll you get the main idea um but nevertheless, there's a few interesting things here, especially in the part I'm going to talk about today. I think a, a core theme here is is gender and femi- almost feminism, right? And, and the independence of women. And how do women achieve that independence? How do they how do they gain it? We, we're actually given two women who are now thrust in a position of of independence, you know, where their choice is either kind of you know pure independence and freedom or some kind of new dependence. And what we see is both cases, they kind of fall back into systems of dependence. But there are feminist moments here. And I, I don't know if Brown is consciously thinking about these things, but it's, you know, it does have the, the highlights of a more feminist critique of American society at the time, especially the way in which women were always the dependent of men. Right? And I'll get to that in a little bit, especially with the character of Eliza Hadwin. So let's, let's see what's in um, part two. Part two of Arthur Murphy. I'm just going to look at the first 13 chapters of part two, and I'll pick it up in the next episode with the remainder of, of the novel. Um, the, now, the first half of the novel is mostly told from Mervyn's point of view, but the narrator's is this guy, Dr. Stevens, and he basically meets Mervyn, and then Mervyn tells the story. That's the bulk of part one. Part two, when part two begins, that story just ended. And so we are left off with, with Welbeck off, no one knows where, his money destroyed. Um, Mervyn independent, standing up for himself, and but almost died of of yellow fever. Found by Doctor Stevens, taken to his house, and then he tells the story. So that's that's where part one ends. Part two so therefore picks up with Stephen again. So for most of part two, we're back to that kind of structure where we have Stevens narrate and then Mervyn telling a story. And we're going to get some of Mervyn's backstory here, which is kind of nice. And we're going to maybe that'll be in the next episode, though. To be honest. But we have uh, Stevens telling a story for a while from his point of view, and then we go back into Mervyn's storytelling. And then at the very end of the novel, the last 10 chapters or so, are actually Mervyn writing down his life story, or what remains of it, what we don't know, the part of his life story that we don't know, both his past and what he's done since the events of, of the bulk of the novel. All right, so uh, we start now obviously with Dr. Stevens. And I'm going to go quickly through these first few chapters because basically what you have here is Stevens dealing with the aftermath of Arthur Mervyn. Arthur Mervyn is associated with Welbeck by most people. He's seen as a criminal. He's actually being looked for by the police. But Stevens believes him. Stevens again and again repeats in this part of the story that he 100% believes Mervyn's honesty. And he does this because he heard the story from his lips. And if you hear the story from the lips, you believe him. And this is a common theme, actually. A lot of characters in the story, once they hear Mervyn tell the story, they believe him, even if they had bad judgments of him before. And I think that might be a mark of Mervyn's uh, nature or his charisma or, or some aspect of him. But it, people, people tend to really fully believe his story. 
So um, Stevens basically says that he's going to take Mervyn in and train him, give him an education, and he feels this obligation to him, kind of like that idea if you save a man's life, you, you have an obligation to, to care for him from that point. He's, he's your burden if you save his life. And Stevens basically believes that. And mostly what we're getting in chapters one through three and a little bit of four is Stevens piecing together parts of the story from the people around him, right? This is still early America, so people know each other. It's a pretty small community, right? Philadelphia only had, I think, 50,000 people. And these towns, a lot of the towns, are, these are set in a really small village towns in the outskirts of the city. So these people know each other. So the rumors spread pretty fast. And so a lot of the names that come up in Mervyn's narrative are known to Stevens. Not just Welbeck, but uh, Clemenzo Lodi is known. That uh, the Watson, he, he's known, um, and actually he goes to search for Watson for a while. So this is all uh, what Stevens is trying to piece together in these early chapters. And he does a few different, he goes on a few quests actually of his own. So Mervyn's actually outside the narrative in this part of, of the novel. We just get the sense that he's recuperating, he's, he's starting his education, he's starting to kind of feel confident in himself. You know, kind of continuing this this maturation process. But, for instance, he, uh, Stevens finds out about Clemenza Lodi and realizes that she's with a, a known prostitute named Mrs. Villers. And this is going to be an important plot point later on because, you know, these are clues that Stevens digs up that Mervyn are later on going to follow up when he makes amends. I don't know, is that the right word, amends? He never really takes responsibility for Welbeck's crimes, so it's not amends in that sense. But he does try to do right by them at the end of the story. We get more detail on Welbeck's crimes, things that Mervyn really wasn't privy to and couldn't really talk about in any detail. So they're all kind of explained here, and I don't think there's much point in going into them in too, too much. But I do think there's an interesting, a few interesting things in Chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4 about the changing nature of American society at the time. One that's really interesting is this guy Wortley. Wortley is the one who originally, when Stevens brought in Arthur Mervyn from Philadelphia, said, I know that guy. He's associated with that guy who robbed me or stole my money. Right? And we didn't hear much about him, but we hear more now in the story as, as Stevens starts to dig up what was his relationship with Welbeck and, and how did he get scammed. And here's a passage. This is on page 434 of the Library of America version. Jameson and Thetford, however, were rich, and I had not till now been informed that they had reasons for pursuing Welbeck with peculiar animosity. The latter was an uncle of whom the fate had been related to Mervyn, and was of one of those employed money, not as a medium of traffic, but as itself a commodity. He had neither wine nor clothes to transmute into silver. He thought it a tedious process to exchange today $100 for a cake, cask, or bale, and tomorrow exchange that cask or bale for $110. It was better to give the hundred for a piece of paper which carried forthwith to the money changer, he could procure 123 or th three-fourths. In short, this man's coffer was supplied by the despair of honest men and the stratagems of rogues. I did not immediately suspect how the man's prudence and indefatigable attention to his own interest should allow him to become the dupe of Welbeck. End quote. So this is about um, Wortley's uh, business. And Thetford's business and the kind of business that they were involved in. And we wonder why were they so easily scammed by Welbeck. But there's a strong suggestion here that they were conners themselves. They were basically playing the money game, right? The currency game. Not actually engaging in, in, in legitimate trade. So it's, it's kind of, you know how capitalism is today. Uh, you know, there are, of course, production. There is 
old style capitalist production, but a lot of what goes on in the capitalist economy now is just exchanges and repackaging money and repackaging debt. And, and any of us who studied the 2008 crisis know very well how unstable that is and how it is kind of like a game, right? Even just playing the stock market, you're, you're just you're just spending funding off other people's labor, right? But you're cleverer than them or you're one step ahead in a way. And the actual jobs of, of actual business is a little bit too burdensome for these types of business, capitalists. And I'm just, I get the feeling that everyone in this kind of emerging capitalist market is to some degree a con artist. And the, the criticisms of Welbeck are, you know, certainly he was quite bad and, and immoral. And, and, and Brown is not really trying to equivocate on that. He certainly does think that labor and education and cultivation are better for you than being a con artist. Nevertheless, I, I think there's a slight suggestion here that the whole world's kind of turning to shit in, the, in this sense, turning, becoming more like Welbeck, like our future is Welbeck, not, not Mervyn. So, um, yeah, chapter two, a lot of this is about Stephen's belief in Mervyn, his total faith and... The, the, the doubts of other people around him about Mervyn. Most people seem to say, well, he's associated with Welbeck. He must have been a stooge. Everything is too preposterous in Mervyn's story to really be believed. And he starts to look for evidence to back up Mervyn's story where, where he can. Because he does seem to have this feeling he needs to help him clear his name. And partially he's able to find some aspect of Mervyn's old background, right? How... Uh, what is it like? He finds out about the death of death of Arthur's mother, the seduction of of the, of his sister by Colvin. This is this is kind of stuff that is in public record, at least in public knowledge, right? But ultimately, it's all about Arthur's character and believability. Other people have the doubts, especially Wortley seems to have his doubts. And then we get chapter three, which is a really really long and kind of ponderous chapter all about the, really this true story of Welbeck and Watson. And, and it, it's all about this shipping scheme. And, you know, because Amos Watson was the one who was killed. He's gone missing, right? Uh, of course, we got from Mervyn's story that he's buried, but there's still kind of this search for him and his money. And uh, like it's supposed to, the money's supposed to go to this person, Miss Maurice and connections in Jamaica or in other cities. So it's a real complicated kind of whole Atlantic uh, shipping, shipping scheme that was involved in. He ends up getting much of the story from Watson's brother. Um, but it's in chapter four that we kind of move back into, into Mer Mervyn's story. Oh, I think I forgot to mention this. Back in chapter one, actually, um, before all this investigative work was being done by Stevens, Mervyn, once he recuperated, said, I'm going to go and, and go to the Hadwins. The Hadwins are these people who brought him in, right? And that's the reason he went back to Philadelphia was to find Wallace. Wallace, who is the fiance of one of the Hadwin daughters. He would decide to risk his life in Philly to, to, to help her because he felt a debt to that family. But he kind of, he, last he knew, he put Wallace on a cart, basically on a, on a, on a cab and had him go back to, to the farm, right? He never really followed up on that family. So he decides to go seek them out. He also wants to help Clemenza Lodi if he can. So those are kind of his two initial quests. It's all about helping the ladies um, in a way. And I don't know, is that, is that one way we want to take this part of the story is, is it in the end of the day, what we have here is a, a male savior freeing these damsels in distress. I don't know. But um, at one point, you know, Mervyn comes back in, in these early chapters. And he comes back sort of dressed as a gentleman. He comes back a little bit more... Uh, 
in in shape and mature and and looking more of a part of a of a country gentleman. Chapter four deals with the the background involving this Mrs. Wentworth and her nephew Clavering. Right, so this was a really weird part of Mervyn's original story. He apparently knew this kid Clavering. You know, he was on the farm, like a farm laborer, who died. And he had this picture of him that the guy drew that he carried around and cherished it, but he lost it in Philadelphia. And then later on, under one of Welbeck's schemes, he went to meet this Mrs. Wentworth, and he saw the picture. And, he, and then he's like, where would you get this picture? He asked about it, and he finds out that she knew this Clavering. And he, he, he sort of says he's dead, and she gets really offended and upset by this because he just can't say too much about how he knows this this clavering but this is kind of a really shady part of the story for a lot of people and so stevens tries to deal with wentworth's suspicions and so he's also that's another reason he was trying to investigate this because mervyn is under suspicion by wentworth for like trying to scam him her out of her fortune and the reason why is because the nephew the one that mervyn's claiming is dead was the actual heir to the property so obviously then it would be, you know, to Welbeck's benefit to pretend that the heir to the property is dead to be easier for him to scam it out of her. All right, so there's a lot of mess left by Mervyn's story. And I guess that makes the second half of the story necessary. I, I don't know. I, I think it does kind of stand up on its own without this stuff. You know, it's kind of like those horror movies, right? You don't need to have the police procedurals that follow the horror movie, right? Where everyone gets questions and, you know... Because, you know, I don't know, whenever I watch horror movies, I always think that at the end, you know, a slasher film. Like, who's going to explain this all to the police afterwards? You don't really need that, though. The movie can just sort of end, right? The story can end without that. But Brown here seems to need, feel the need to clean up all these loose ends. He did the same thing in Wheeland, actually, with um, that, that story of that, that major and his family. Well, anyways, um, he... During these investigations, you know, he gets a a notice, a letter, like a letter saying, "Come to the debtor's prison, right? We you're needed in the debtor's prison." So he goes, right? And the reason he's going to go is because he has a good friend named Carlton, who's a debtor, and he's likely going to be the one that needs help. So he doesn't even think of Mervyn is being involved in this he just assumes that it's this guy Clariton and we get a wonderful little dissertation here on the on the character of the debtor right and of course in these days in American history you did have debtors prisons right if you couldn't pay your debts you could be arrested and thrown in there until you could pay your debts usually that meant you'd have to find a friend who's been willing to front you the money but anyways um quote fortitude was not among my friend's qualities he was more prone to shrink from danger than encounter it, and to yield to the flood rather than to sustain it. And it was just to observe that his anguish on the present occasion arose not wholly from selfish considerations. His parents were dead, and two sisters were dependent on him for support. One of these was nearly his own age. The other was scarcely emerged from childhood. There was an intellectual as well as a personal resemblance between my friend and my sisters. They possessed his physical infirmities, his vehement passions, and refinements of taste. And the misery of his condition were tenfold increased by reflecting on the feelings to which would be awakened in them by the knowledge of his state and the hardships to which the loss of his succor would expose him. So partially that's about his family, but I think at the heart of it is this, this uh, the character of the debtor, right? Someone who 
perhaps spends too much, but is too weak to actually earn a living with kind of too high of passions. There's a lot of moral judgment in this novel, and it's, you know, especially on the work ethic, on the virtues of hard work versus swindling, a kind of the criticism of, of all kind of the money-making games. This is something that's really frowned upon. Like greed is, is constantly being condemned in this, but also kind of laziness or overly passionate views, right? The, the villains are always loud and boisterous and angry all the time, and the good guys are always very quiet and subtle. And, and content and, and straightforward. Even Mervyn, when he's under these incredible pressure, pressure-filled situations, always really has a level head. All right, chapter five. Um, he, um, Mervyn, well, he does find Col- that, that, that Carlton. That's his name? I want to make sure his name, but yeah, Carlton. If he finds Carlton in this jail, um, debtor's prison, as he suspected, but he's not the one who called him, and he's really not able to, to help him too much. He is going to try to help him a little bit later on, but they do chit-chat a little bit. But ultimately, he runs into Arthur Mervyn there, and he's there with Welbeck. So Welbeck's the one actually in the debtor's prison, and he's looking pretty, pretty haggard, pretty sick. He was pallid and emaciated. He did not open his eyes on my entrance. He seemed to be asleep, but before I had time to exchange glances with Mervyn or to inquire into the nature of the scene, he awoke. Yeah, he's diseased, in debtor prisons, dying, right? So he's still in the picture, but he's not really able to be a villain anymore. So with this, uh, Arthur and Stephen leave and, and begin their conversation. But first, I think he takes Mervyn to his house and he says, go talk to my wife and you can hang out there. But first he goes to stop to see Mrs. Carlton, who's the brother of, of Carlton, the guy in debtor's prison. And they have a discussion about, you know, what are we going to do about your brother in debtor's prison? And she's like, it's, she, her response is kind of interesting. She says, right, I don't, you know, he's, it, jail will be good for him, essentially. He needs to sit there for a while. I'm not, I'm not ready to, like, pay off his debts, right? He needs to improve his habits and his behavior. And he can only do that with actually being in jail, right? And this is one of several characters in the novel that, that sort of fit an archetype of a uh, of a fiscally responsible, financially savvy woman juxtaposed to a more risk-taking, spendthrift man. This is the case with the Watsons. It's the case with Maurice. They're the ones who are eventually going to receive uh, some of the some of Welbeck's money by the end of the novel. Uh, Car- Mrs. Carlton sort of this way that there's there's the that the women like no money is something here, and it's interesting because at this time in American history. Women, unless like single women, you know, could sort of earn property that the money they made, but married women couldn't, right? That was all the property of their husbands. So men had control over the property, over the purse strings of the family, and even money that they brought into the family that women brought into the family, maybe through a, like from their father or whatever, would go to the husband and be his property. So this this was a part of property law that wasn't fixed until the nineteenth century. In different states it happened at different times. Uh, that, that women were able to inherit property equally and, and even in a marriage control their own wealth. But we see here a lot of women who really do seem to know money and control money and, and have that, that discipline. It's the men who are kind of reckless and wastrel and, and criminal with, with, with clarency. The, the women are pretty hard-headed uh, in this novel. It's, I can't think of any women in the story, actually, who are 
like really driven by vice. There's not, I mean, Clara in Wieland was, is much more messed up than any of these characters in this story. Um, I guess Clemenza Lodi, she's just in a bad situation, but even her, she's able to remain kind of hard-headed. Eliza Hadwin has a bit of emotionalism, but she's very young, right? Most of the, the older women we, we run into don't fall into this. It's always men here who seem to be violent and aggressive and greedy and, and, and all these other negative characteristics. So with that out of the way, we, we jump back to Mervyn's story. So Stevens goes back home and he says, well, where have you been? What have you been up to? Tell me, tell me your story since you, you left for the Hadwins back in chapter one. And um, he, he did leave for the Hadwins, but he was also worried about Clemenza Lodi. This was the woman that Welbeck seduced. And she was near. She's also been stashed in this nearby area. It's something Stevens, I think, found out that where she was staying. So he wants to approach Clemenza. He thinks it's somewhat more urgent because she's kind of in a house of ill repute. But at the same time, he doesn't quite know how to approach her yet. And he's got language issues. She doesn't speak English and he doesn't really speak Italian. So he's kind of anxious on how to approach Clemenza Lodi. And he kind of takes the easy path. He goes back to the Hadwin farm. But along the way, on the road to the Hadwin farm, he sees the, the cart, the car, I guess, the carriage that... Wallace was dumped on. Remember back in the second episode, I talked about how uh, Mervyn didn't want to go back to the farm because he thought he was going to die of yellow fever. So he dropped off Wallace in a carriage going that way, and he decided to go back to Philly. But he finds that cart, right? And the rider, who's still alive, but I think he's sick, relates how Wallace had died along the way. And out of this, he feels really disappointment. Um, but at the same time, he... We get we get an interesting discussion on on the like the debate over ends and means. What matters more are the ends ends or means? And this is what uh, Mervin says: "Quote the preservation of this man was my sole motive for entering the infected city and subjecting my own life to its hazards, from which my escape may almost be esteemed miraculous. Was not the end disproportionate to the means? Was there ignorance in believing my life a price too great to be given for this? I was not indeed sorry for the past. My purpose was just in the means which I selected." where the best my limited knowledge applied. My happiness should be drawn from the reflections on the equity of my intentions, that these intentions were frustrated by the ignorance of others or my own or the consequence of human frailty. Honest purposes, though they may not bestow happiness on all, will at least secure it to him who fosters them." End quote. Now that's a really interesting discussion. It's not a consequentialist ethic at all. What matters is the, the, the moral choice that goes into the decision to do something good. So with this out of the way, though, and feeling secure that he made the right choice, he just goes on to the Hadwin house. And the only people there are, are Susan and Eliza and the, this Caleb, this old servant who was in the house. Williams and the wife are found to have died. Um, so the plague also hit these outskirting towns. Now, as we're going to see, I think it's in Chapter 7, Susan is also going to die very quickly. She, she hears someone coming to the door. She assumes it's Wallace. When she goes down the steps and she sees it's not Wallace, she faints and she dies not long after. Right. So now it's just Eliza, Caleb, and, and Mervyn. And a lot of this chapter is kind of, we're back to the creep. I mean, I, I think Brown is good at keeping some level of creepiness. There's a couple scenes in this half of the novel that do have that kind of eerie feeling that you have in the yellow fever epidemic, or you do throughout um, the story of, of Wieland. But here they're digging the grave. And 
really what the, the main concern now is what to do about Eliza. Eliza is is essentially on her own now, right? And and Mervyn feels the need to to care for her and take care of her, and make sure her future is is secure. And that's what is really discussed in chapter eight. The situation is, is thus. Quote, the father's property now belonged to the daughter. Eliza's mind was quick, active, sagacious, but her total inexperience gave her something, the appearance of folly. She was eager to fly from this house and resign herself and her property without limitation or condition to my control. Our intercourse had been short, but she relied on my protection and counsel as absolutely as she had been accustomed to do upon her father's. So she's, she's totally dependent, right? And here I think we can get, start to get into the conversation about a little bit more on dependency and, and the, the role of women in early American society and the idea that they couldn't really be a head of a household, especially not, not young women. Eliza's like 15 at this point in the novel. Not that much younger than, than Arthur Mervyn. In fact, they often talk about their similar ages. Um, if you remember, actually, he was quite in love with Eliza in part one. He seems to drop that love, and now he has a feeling of obligation. Maybe this is all maturation again, right? Like a, for a young boy... Dependent on others, love is something you can embrace. But once you grow up, you realize you, you know, you it's about responsibility, right? It's like you get you get married because you're really happy and love with someone, but the day after, right? Check the pregnancy test. Oh, it's you're pregnant, and then now you got responsibility, right? Everyone will tell you that if you have advice. It's like now you're no longer life isn't about fun; it's about your duty to others, and that seems to be what's happening in part to Arthur Mervyn. Now, they got the will. They do have his will, William's will. William had one, the father's will. And essentially, the will gives protection of Eliza to Philip Hadwin, the brother. And when she hears this, she totally freaks out. And she actually stands up for herself and, and refuses to accept this will. In fact, she goes so far as to actually burn the will, right? Burns the words of her father, the will of her father, because she does not want anything to do with this guy, Philip Hadwin. And I guess there's no copy in an office somewhere. I don't know. I don't know how they did it in those days. But the will's burned. She even says the words, then I am free when given the choice. Like basically Arthur Mervyn reads the will and says, you know, these are your choices, right? You either free or you have to go, go live with Philip. And she says, then I am free. She says those words exactly. And she's kind of declaring her independence here from her uncle. So um, that's the decision. Now there's really no legal bind between Eliza and Philip and now Eliza can inherit the property of her father and she'll have a nice life so it seems to work out from Mervyn's point of view but they leave and they actually almost die of cold I'm not quite sure why they had the felt the need to leave they couldn't just stay in the Hadwin house but uh, they I think I think actually I think Arthur Mervyn was trying to find a, a nice comfortable place for her to to live until she got her education and cultivation or something but they get kind of stuck in the cold, and finally they're picked up by a guy, by a guy named Mr. Curling, who agrees to take in Eliza after hearing the story. Again, we have Arthur Mervyn telling the story, and it being totally convincing to the listener, and they 100% go along with it. Um, he likes to, I think Arthur Mervyn does this a lot, leaves people with, with these strangers with the best of hopes. Um, but basically, he leaves it, and Curling's going to find a safe place for, for Eliza. Meanwhile, uh, he Curling knows Philip Hadwin. And so he, the decision then is, why don't you go see Philip Hadwin and talk about this issue? And so that's where Arthur Mervyn goes. Arthur Mervyn is going to go and see the uncle of Eliza, tell him about the death of the family, 
tell him about the, the fact that there's no will anymore. And that gets us to chapter 9. 9 actually begins with Arthur Mervyn addressing the fact, something we've, we've already thought about, which is he seemed to be pretty in love with her before um, in the earlier part of the novel. In fact, one of the reasons he wanted to go to get Wallace from Philadelphia was he felt he really couldn't be on the farm anymore because he couldn't be around this girl that he was so infatuated with. But he goes back and thinks about it. Even going so far as to say, like, this is not a bad marriage for me. She's still good looking. She's, she's young. She can, she's cultivatable. And she's got this property. She's got this farm. She doesn't have to split it with Susan, who died. So it's not bad for him. But he also has anxiety over, you know, the commitment of marriage. And he doesn't quite feel fully ready for that yet. And he's got other dreams for himself, though. He also fears committing himself to a life on a farm and just be a farmer, which is a big change in Mervyn's character. Earlier in the story, all he wanted was to go back to the farm. Now he's got bigger dreams for himself. Quote, should I mix with the world and roll myself in different classes of society, be a witness to new scenes? Might not be my modes of judging in, in undergo essential variation? Might I not gain the knowledge of beings whose virtue was a gift of experience and a growth of knowledge, who joined to the modesty and charms of women, the benefit of education, the maturation and steadfastness of age, and with those character and sentiment my own would be much more congenial than they could possibly be with an extremely extreme youth, rustic simplicity, and mental imperfections of Eliza Hadwin, end quote. So he's a bit worried that as he kind of moves up in society, he'll find Eliza essentially boring. And a lot of the, the concern that Arthur Mervyn has here is over her education. To how can she be cultivated? If she doesn't have this property, she's going to have to work. And then she won't have the time to, to train her mind and become a better person. And, and uh, you know, I think we could go back and read Benjamin Rush's works on the education of women. And, and think about the debate at the time after the American Revolution about what was the role of, of women's education. So he... He decides, he tells Eliza then that he's going to check on, on Philip, and then he goes. Right, and it's actually in chapter 10 then that we get the confrontation between Philip and, and, Philip and uh, Mervyn, Arthur Mervyn, right? Now actually, when they get there, Caleb's already there, and he had already told Philip the news about the, about the farm, and apparently also about the will, because Philip ends up knowing about the will. There's actually nothing good about Philip's character. Brown does not waste any time making it clear to us that this, this Philip is, a, is a, bad, a bad guy. right? A drunkard, a fighter, he's a thief, an embezzler. He, you know, we got a little eugenics thought here that his children were tainted with the dissolutionness of their father. And marriage has not repaired the reputation of his daughters or cured them of depravity. He's cunning, he's a tyrant to his children, a plague on his neighbors. He keeps a rendezvous for drunkards and idlers. So there's a whole list of sins we get in chapter 10 about, about Philip. So, you know, there's, he's a, he's a Welbeck sort of person. He's even seems worse than Welbeck in a lot of ways. But there's an interesting parallel between the final scene with Welbeck when they confronted over the money in the previous episode I talked about it, and this scene here. Basically, all Arthur Mervyn wants to do is say, okay, Eliza has elected independence for herself. And she has a legal right because there's no will. Philip doesn't see through that. He knows there's a will. But he goes through three arguments the same way Welbeck did. And, and it, I don't know if it's in the same order, but 
you know, one is the the argument by anger, just that the name calling, the the violent words, the the aggressive accusations. There's that, and then there's kind of a turn to the moral argument, right? And Welbeck made that same turn to a moral argument when the violence failed, and that moral argument for Welbeck was like, you know. I, I am like I'm caring for Clemens Elodie, so I inherit her wealth as her caretaker. Again, this question of dependence and, and the you know the the fact that there's very little room for women to actually be independent in early American society. For um, for Philip, it's like a moral right to his brother's property. He, it's and then finally, when that fails, they turn to the legal, and Welbeck kind of has his legal game he plays at the end. What Philip says is, yeah, well, even if she has the property, it doesn't matter because I still own it because I have the mortgage. And I own the mortgage. So the, actually, his brother mortgaged the farm to Philip. And I don't know if this is proven. Basically, we're kind of left hanging saying this is going to be worked out in the courts sometime in the future. I got the feeling Brown kind of bored of Eliza and didn't want to go back and, and finish up. I, entirely her story. I don't think we ever learn what the fate of this is. But he claims there's a mortgage on the farm, and that unless Eliza can pay it, the farm will revert back to Philip anyway. So Eliza can have her freedom, but she's not going to have anything else, just a couple hundred dollars. Um, but Mervyn kind of puts, throws up his hand and says, okay, whatever, law will need to work this out. And, and that's that. So that's... That's that, and he goes back to to Curlings to to see Eliza. So, chapter eleven, we start with then the kind of the what to do with Eliza question. Now she doesn't have money, right? So she doesn't have the chance to develop her intellect. She's going to have to probably get a job very soon. Um, you know, he's thinking of various plans for her, and and he's going to not entirely forget her, but for now, he's just kind of has to dump her someplace where she can be safe until you can figure out what to do with, with Eliza. So that's the extent of the help you can give at this point. But he's got a bigger fish to fry right now, and that is Clemenza Lodi. That's his other half, the other woman he wants to save, the other damsel in distress. So he sets off immediately to Mrs. Villers, which is where Clemenza Lodi stayed. Mrs. Villers is a known prostitute. And the fear here, is that, I don't know if it's ever stated directly, it's hinted at strongly at several points, is that Clemenza Lodi has been a prostitute. Uh, under under Mrs. Villers, or at least she's if she stays in this house, she's going to be one at some point. She's still a young, attractive woman, pregnant at this point, or or just had to, had a baby. He goes to the house to seek out Clemenza, and and again we have the discussion of means and ends. It comes up right again. It's almost the same language. At the end of chapter 11, he says, I pretend not to the wisdom and experience of age, to the praise and forethought or subtlety. I choose the obvious path and pursue it with a headlong ex expedition. Good intentions unaided by knowledge will perhaps produce more injury than benefit. And therefore, knowledge must be gained, but the acquisition is not momentary, is not bestowed unasked for or untoiled for. Meanwhile, it must not be unactive because we are ignorant. Our great purpose must hurry to performance, whether our knowledge be greater or less, end quote. I think most modern people see this attitude of, of like what matters is the intention and we should pursue what we think is right regardless of, of the ends as a very dangerous idea, right? A lot of the time people criticize socialism for that way. Like they might have the right intentions, but they, they kind of had very vile means to the end. 
right? And, you know, whatever, we're often like our ambitions or our dreams or our feelings about the ends and, and our own moral rectitude are often confused and muddled, right? So the consequentialist ethical standpoint would say, no, what really matters is, you know, who's hurt or what's done, you know, to them. And Brown, or at least Arthur Mervyn, seems to be on the side of, of no, what really matters is my intention, right? And of course, that's his whole defense throughout this book. Right? Is that he never knew Welbeck was a criminal. He never knew he was doing bad things. He never intended to do anyone harm. And that, that seems to be true. There's, there doesn't seem to be any badness in, in Arthur Mervyn. So uh, in chapter 12, he enters the house. And we have really another horror scene. And, and I like that Brown peppers these in. It makes the, keeps the second half of the book from being a little, you know, not completely dull. Um, but the horror scene is that he sees Clemenza Lodi holding the body of this kind of quiet young baby. And, and he actually sees it die, right, in Clemenza Lodi's arms. And he talks to Clemenza Lodi, but it, the, the conversation is not really, you know, she's distraught. She's in total grief. And eventually he gets kicked out. But not before um, Mervyn takes on the moral burden of saving Clemenza. So with seeing her, seeing her anguish, seeing the place she's living in, seeing what it's involved with, he decides he's going to come back and, and save her. It's, it's really a moral obligation of his. So he commits to coming back to, to free her. And then in chapter 13, uh, we we then see, he then seeks out Welbeck. So he's it's really like he's trying to clean up all these loose ends in his life. And he goes to seek out Welbeck, who, who he finds in the debtor's jail. Uh, Welbeck you know, here's the news about Clemenza Lodi and the dead baby. And he doesn't seem very distraught or interested in it at all. He, he actually deflects a lot of this black back on Mervyn, you know, accusing him of, of really being the one at fault. And he's the architect of all his problems. And with that, we, we finish up with Mervyn's narrative. So, um, so it's, if you're, it's like, I think it's chapter six through Thirteen are the, the actual bulk of Mervyn's kind of second story that he tells to Stevens. Now, from now on, and I'll pick this up in the next episode, we have a little bit more from Stevens' point of view, maybe one chapter or two. But then, yeah, I think it starts in chapter 16. Mervyn picks up the pen, and from chapter 16 to the end, he tells the rest of the story himself. And so we'll see um, how he makes amends, you know, fixes other problems you know there's still more for him to do more side quests for him to go on um, but that's it that's that's mostly what I want to talk about I think the main thing of interest in this part of the story is the the role of women and the role the relationship between men and women and the, the idea of dependency and the the property rights of women and and all these issues and how it really does lead to a situation where women had a very difficult time finding a way in the world without the guidance of a, of a man, right? Brown takes it for granted that, of course, these women need male benefactors to, to care for them or to show them the right way or to give them a place to live or to eventually marry them, right? It's the idea of an independent woman is it's, it's really not here. Outside of that one line where Eliza says, I am free, it, we don't have much evidence that these women are able to be independent at least in the social sense right the society doesn't accept it at the same time though he's aware that some of these women are actually pretty crafty with money pretty level-headed and it's the men who seem to be have much more of the emotional problems so to some degree i think brown realizes he's making a, a jab at 
gender relations in, in early early America. So, um, of course, that might conform to, in a way to the separate spheres idea, doesn't it? The separate spheres idea is that there's a realm outside, which is politics. It's dirty. It's sinful. It's where you're going to find drink and debauchery and crime and theft. Then there's the realm of the home, right, which is nurturing and caring and virtuous, right? But it's not the realm of money, right? And But Brown doesn't go that far. Brown has a lot of women being pretty crafty with money, especially in the last part of the, the story. And that's what I'll talk about in the next episode. I'll, I'll finish up Arthur Mervyn by Charles Brockton Brown in 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 part four of my, my review. So if you're reading along, you can read chapters 14 to the end. I think it's 11 or 12 chapters. And then we'll be done with it. So uh, as always, thanks for listening. Leave your comments below, uh, especially if you have ideas or questions or thoughts about uh, how women are portrayed in this part of, of the novel. I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that or anything else that, that comes to your mind or anything else you notice when you read this novel for yourself. So um, I'll see you next time. Faces come out of the rain when you stray. No one remembers your name when you're strange, when you're strange.